Allegations of abusive bosses, unhealthy cultures, and even sexual harassment in VC firms. Fintech startup Ramp raises $300 million, but its valuation drops by 28%, and two big venture-backed startups, Instacart and Clavio, file for IPOs. I'm Jackson Fordyce, and this is Venture Daily. Toxic culture can exist in every industry, including venture capital. For the past few months, Sifted, a European startup media outlet, has been reporting on the quote, toxic environment at some unnamed VC firms. The allegations include abusive bosses, unhealthy cultures, and even sexual harassment. Two weeks ago, Sifted published a piece about sexual harassment allegations against Nanad Maravats, an award-winning investor and founder of DN Capital, a venture firm based in London. DN and Maravats denied the allegations and have announced an externally-led investigation into the claims. Readers of the multiple articles from Sifted about toxic VC culture have shared their thoughts with the publication on what needs to be done to improve workplace culture. The resounding recommendations suggest a need for more LP involvement. An anonymous European VC told Sifted's Tim Smith and Amy Lewin that, quote, The LP should be the arbiters of this, providing some control. They're the shareholders of the VC effectively. To better understand LP relationships and the need for more transparency within the VC community, I spoke with Jen Noondorfer. I'm Jen Noondorfer, the co-founder and managing partner at January Ventures. Jen, big picture. What role do LPs currently play in shaping the venture landscape? That's a great question. LPs play a really important role in shaping the venture ecosystem. And you know, part of that is obvious, right? They are deploying capital into venture funds um, and sort of deciding which GPs are in business and, and which aren't. But I think, you know, in addition to the capital, um, LPs play a huge role in signaling and venture is a market where there's a lot of signaling, right? It's a long-term business. Uh, you know, returns are years, if not decades down the line, depending on which stage you invest in. And so LPs pay, play a huge role in sort of the near-term signaling that other GPs rely on, founders rely on, other LPs rely on. And so, you know, as we think about sort of one of the key pieces of the venture ecosystem, LPs are right there at the top. In Sifted's article, an anonymous source explains that, quote, Sim LPs don't even engage. They'll meet a couple of partners, and if the returns are good, then that's just fine. How can VCs help LPs be more engaged in what's going on at VC firms? Yeah, I, you know, this is obviously we're all in a returns-driven business. And so returns are a big piece of the diligence that, you know, that we, they're a big piece of what we're focused on as, as investors. And it makes sense that they are a big piece of where LPs are focused with their diligence. But I think as LPs, you know, the really great LPs tend to peel back the layers and say, like, what's driving those returns? And the Sifted article raised, you know, a lot of points around culture and code of conduct and, you know, what's really happening um, within venture funds. And that's often not easy to figure out in, you know, just very cursory diligence, right? References only go so far. This is a network-driven business where people may not talk freely about someone that they think is a bad actor. But I think that the best LPs really start examining, they sit with the teams that they're diligencing, they figure out how they work, how they make decisions, um, how, how the team comes together. And that then becomes a proxy for not only how they've performed in the past, because you know that's, that's the issue with performance and metrics, it's all backward looking. And if the, the best LPs are able to say like, here's how this team is working and performing in a way that we think will drive future performance. Of course, VCs, LPs, and portfolio companies want to signal that things are going great to each other, the media, and even themselves. But sometimes things aren't exactly going great. 
Is there an environment within the venture capital right now where it's difficult to be 100% honest and transparent? That's a good question, Jackson. I, I think the issues that the Sifted article raised and that you're probing on, I don't think that they are unique to venture and startups, to be quite honest. I think these issues can happen anywhere, right? The, the risk of a toxic culture, the risk of people overselling, the risk of people, you know, maybe not being fully transparent. Um, and so I, well, I don't think it is unique to venture. I think we're at a tipping point where, you know, the, the need for transparency in venture has never been greater. And part of that is just, you know, in a down market, in a, in a market that is correcting, transparency is really important so that everyone that is involved in a fund or, or a company or within you know, LP's portfolio really knows what's what's going on, right? It's easy to be transparent when things are up and to the right. But I think, you know, in this cycle, we're seeing that those that can be transparent when the going is hard are really being rewarded. Um, but I think more than that, you know, the, the transparency is so valued right now because in sort of culture and transparency, because it's also what founders are looking for. And so, you know, while capital is a really important part of this equation, capital is the commodity that we as VCs provide. And it's all of the rest of the the resources and culture that a venture capitalist shows up to a portfolio company with that, that really differentiate them. And so I think for, you know, the, the reason that we think transparency is so important is because it's how, how GPs and LPs and founders are working together. And it's really, I think, um, you know, it, it helps people better navigate the venture ecosystem. Jen, last question. You mentioned the importance of transparency. How can investors be more transparent with their portfolio companies, LPs, and their colleagues? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think one of the things and, and one of the timely things that that question prompts is the SEC's new rules um, that are all really aimed at creating new transparency, new levels of transparency between um, GPs and LPs. And look, I think, you know, I am all for transparency um, and things that, that really help level the playing field, you know, for both GPs and LPs. Um, and I think some of those, you know, like having, you know, regular, regular reporting requirements and audit requirements, like that will create more transparency. Um, and, you know, I think these are, these are really significant rules that are going to meaningfully alter how venture capital funds work. I think the one thing that I'd like to highlight is the risk of that transparency. And so, you know, the, with these new rules, the largest firms and the firms that are actually registered investment advisors, they face the biggest change, but they're also the firms that have the resources and the teams to really comply with them. And so while it will be a big change for them, I think they're well set up to to navigate that change. You know, the I think the risk in all of this change is that it stifles uh, new entrants. And so, for example, you know, the, the, the audit requirement for all venture capital funds, well, that's great in theory, and it is good hygiene for a fund. You know, an emerging manager launching with a very small fund may find that an audit is cost prohibitive. And so I think as an industry, we need to figure out how, you know, how we help new entrants comply with some of these new regulations. And I think it'll be interesting to see how people like AngelList and Carta and tax firms roll out new products to help funds of all sizes comply. That was Jen Neundorfer, co-founder and managing partner at January Ventures. I appreciate your time, Jen. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jackson. It was great to be here. 
Last week, Ramp, the finance automation platform for businesses, announced its $300 million Series D funding round with over $1.5 billion raised to date. Within the last three months, Ramp has launched a new software product, an AI product, and acquired Cohere.io. But despite the raise in business activity, Ramp's valuation has dropped by 28% from $8.1 billion just 15 months ago to 5.8 now, furthering the narrative that the fintech industry is declining. Ramp isn't the only fintech startup to see its valuation plummet in the last 12 months. Klarna plunged 85% in 2022 after its $45 billion valuation dropped to $6.7 billion. Stripe saw a secondary market valuation decrease of 73% in January, and has also seen significant dips in its valuation in the market downturn. Although fintech has been declining over the last year, not everyone is discouraged by the recent news from Ramp. Chris Gardner of Underscore VC believes Ramp's announcement is not a sign that the fintech industry is in rapid decline. Oh, not even close, actually. I think it's a good thing. Um, first of all, it's still a very strong valuation. When you look, I kind of dug into the article, and it sounds like they're at a $300 million run rate. And that kind of implies like a 20x multiple on their on their valuation when public fintech comps are kind of hovering around the 3 to 6x range. So I'm actually, you know, I was actually surprised to see it hang together. So, you know, for the valuation to kind of stick around at that level, um, I actually think it looks pretty good. But boy, we needed a reset anyways from some of the crazy stuff. That's Chris Gardner. Hey, I'm Chris Gardner. I'm a general partner at Underscore VC in Boston, and I'm focused on fintech. Chris, I like that insight, actually, because we've only really been hearing negative things about fintech recently. And on the surface, this announcement from Ramp seemed to align with that narrative. $300 million in funding sounds good. The 28% decrease in valuation sounds not so good. Do you expect other fintech startups to hold off on raising capital right now in fear of lower valuations? Or is raising funds the priority so that these startups have enough cash to continue operations? Well, I think I think it depends on where they are, kind of in their in their growth cycle. Obviously, companies that are out of cash um, are forced into a situation where they have to raise if they can't drop costs enough. Um, you know, on the other hand, that the the market that Ramp is in, you know, with Brex and Airbase and kind of all those guys is super competitive, and I can imagine a lot of the thinking there. You know, I, I think I read that they they had plenty of capital still on on the balance sheet. Um, I have to believe that the the thinking there has to do with maybe making some M and A or fueling growth because just because it's so competitive. So it depends on where you are as a company. Many VCs believe we've seen a market bottom for VC funding. What are your thoughts on the fintech industry? Will we continue to see decreased valuations among fintech startups? So I think what we're starting to see actually is the cream rising to the top. Um, Ramp's a good company. They've got very strong kind of growth metrics. And, you know, I think that any any fintech fundraise in this environment is going to be a, a mark of quality, I think. You know, good companies have sound business models, more rigor and kind of cost management, good go-to-market, et cetera. Um, and I think we're looking at a period of the have and the have-nots in fintech. So those companies that have kind of adjusted to the new world order will do fine and actually kind of benefit. Um, on the other hand, those who haven't, there's going to still be significant mortality to come. But I think we're seeing, I think we'll probably start to see some firming on valuations overall. Chris, what in fintech right now is cause for optimism? Well, look, you know, this may sound self-serving, but I'm a B2B investor strictly. Um, and I think when you look at valuations, it's consumer fintech in particular is taking it on the chin. Um, and I think B2B fintech is going to be the winner here um, overall over B2C in the upcoming cycle. I was going through some pitch book stuff, um, you know, before our call, and it looks like 80% of investments this year in fintech are B2B are B2B fintech investments. And so if I were to kind of, you know, predict a silver lining, I think it's going to be on the on the B2B side. B2C is is just so much more subject to economic swings and consumer sentiment and all that stuff. That was Chris Gardner, general partner at Underscore VC. Thanks for joining the podcast, Chris. All right. Hey, thanks, Jackson.
This weekend was full of big stories, and we couldn't choose just one. So here's three of our favorites. First, Instacart, the grocery delivery company, filed for an IPO on Friday. According to VC Nicole Wishoff, Instacart is the first profitable startup to file for an IPO since December of 2021. Its perspective showed $428 million in profit in 2022, compared to a loss of $73 million in 2021. Also in the filing, Instacart shared that PepsiCo had agreed to buy $175 million in preferred convertible stock, a potential big win for a VC-backed startup. Second, also on Friday, Clavio, the marketing automation platform, announced its filing for an IPO. Clavio reported $15 million in net income within the first six months of the year, compared to last year's loss of $25 million. With this filing, Clavio's founder, Andrew Bialecki, sets the record for the most ownership retained by a founder at an IPO, as he still holds 38% of his company. Could these two big startups filing be a signal that an IPO domino is beginning to fall? And third, there's a new Silicon Valley city being built in Solano County, California. According to a story by the New York Times' Connor Doherty and Aaron Griffith, a company by the name of Flannery Associates has been buying more than $800 million worth of farmland about 60 miles north of San Francisco. Initial suspicions of who purchased the land suggested that Disney was building a new theme park. Others speculated it was China buying up U.S. land. But according to sources who spoke with the Times, the group consists of Silicon Valley elites such as Michael Moritz, chairperson of Sequoia Capital, Reid Hoffman, LinkedIn co-founder, and Mark Andreessen and Chris Dixon, investors at Andreessen Horowitz. As more news comes out about what this group of top VCs is planning to do with the land, we'll let you know here at Venture Daily. Thanks for tuning in to Venture Daily. Today's show is produced by Josiah Simons and Jackson Fordyce. Our theme song was created by Benjamin Cook. If you liked today's episode, please give us an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see y'all tomorrow morning.